You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of two little cycles of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, one called Inner Reading and Inner Hearing, and the other one's called And How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas. This is the first set, and I'm on Lecture 4, entitled Inner Mobility of Thought, given in Dornach on October 6th, 1914. Yesterday I attempted to speak of several inner experiences that we could call the vowel system of the spiritual world. We saw in particular how esoteric reading and esoteric hearing are living inner experiences to which the entire personality, the entire being, must be committed. I mentioned three such experiences for which one must prepare painstakingly. The first comes about when we gradually learn to transport ourselves consciously into the supersensible world in which we are always present unconsciously and, by that means, reach the portal of death. Further, I also spoke of the experience we come to when we acquire the so-called capacity for transformation into other beings. And then I attempted to show how the evil in the world can be so present to us that we recognize that its origin arises from a misuse of higher spiritual powers which are in their place and in their way fully justified. Another experience of this kind occurs when we take entirely in earnest something that is connected with what has just been discussed. We must transform ourselves into something else, but in the process of this transformation we must be able to hold on to the thread of our inner experiences. If we cannot hold on to these threads, we would find ourselves in the same situation as people on the physical plane who cannot remember what they experienced in physical life yesterday or the day before that or years previously. Just as we must hold on to the continuity of consciousness in normal physical life, so must we hold on to our memory through our transformations in the spiritual world. When we have transformed ourselves into a particular being or a particular process, we could lose ourselves outside our soul unless we retain something like a higher, purely spiritual recollection of other forms, processes, and entities of the spiritual world. In other words, we must be a multifarious being, must be able to split ourselves up, break ourselves into pieces, go into multiplicity. This inner experience produces a peculiar feeling, the feeling that you are there, you are this being, yet you are nonetheless another being, you exist within separate entities. Without this developed feeling of multiplicity, we would certainly not be able to attain a true spiritual concept for example, of the nature of the higher hierarchies. 
We can still, on the path we took up yesterday, or on the paths we have followed on other occasions, gain an idea of the nature of the first hierarchy that stands just above us, of the entities of the angels, but to reach a more accurate spiritual idea of the entities of the archangels, we must, through inner feeling, understand something about multiplicity. For we learn only gradually to understand the true situation of these entities of the higher hierarchies. We learn to understand it only gradually because all human conceptualization, all human thinking, is bound to the ordinary relationships of space and time, and entirely different space and time relationships are present when we ascend to the entities of the hierarchy of the archangels. If we start out from ordinary physical consciousness, we always have a certain fundamental feeling, a feeling that is entirely natural for physical consciousness. For example, when, through the visionary gift, I wish to get to a person who lives between death and a new birth, parenthesis by I, I do not mean myself, but in general a person who has visionary power and seeks a dead person, close parenthesis, I first have the feeling that the dead person is there, together with me, just there, and in relation to time I can seek the dead person out, just as on the physical plane I can seek out another person I know to be alive at that time, I need only to find the way to that person. When we are seeking a dead person, this idea is perfectly correct. It is, in a certain sense, still correct when we wish to find an entity from the hierarchy of the angels. But it is no longer correct when we wish to seek out, in the same way, an entity from the hierarchy of the archangels, because an entity from that hierarchy has concentrated its consciousness in a very precise time. <laughs> Let us assume that this line, there's a drawing, represents the course of time. A seer who lives at this point in time, 1914, would be able to find a dead person or an entity from the hierarchy of the angels anywhere in the spiritual world in the same time. However, that doesn't work when we want to seek out a particular entity from the hierarchy of the archangels. In that case, we must go outside of time. We must overcome simultaneity. For example, to find a particular archangel, one must go back, let us say, to the 15th century. Therefore, we cannot say that we will stay in our own time. It may be that we have to go back, back for us, to the year 1465 or thereabouts, and then look for the archangel, again a drawing. If this entity is not to be found in the present, its effect radiates, nonetheless, into our own time. However, we find in our time only its effect. We do not find the entity itself in its own selfhood. Other archangels must be sought for at other points in time. And there's a drawing. We have to go outside of time. This is a difficult concept, but one must reach it. We must be clear that archangels always bear their name rightly. 
We actually first know why they bear this name when we get to their essence, in the sense I have just characterized. They are called, quote, angels of the beginning, close quote, which means they are always to be found at the beginnings of time periods, when peoples originate, when peoples enter into world history for the first time. There are the archangels, present with their full consciousness, with their own selves. That remains present in the future, in their effects. The effects flow into time. And if we wish to find them, we cannot merely remain in our time, we must go out of time, seek out temporal beginnings. No one who wishes to live as a soul only in, let us say, October 1914, is in a position to find anything at all like the archangels. Perhaps not even one of them. That is possible only for those who are able to transport themselves in their soul being back into other time periods in such a way that those periods become open to their direct experience so that they themselves live in those other times. But when we transport ourselves into other time periods it is necessary not to forget how we entered them no more than we may, in the physical world, forget today what we did yesterday. That is something like a law of multiplicity, of the outpouring into plurality. Now we find the primal origins, the spirits of personality, the archai, only when we have transported ourselves back into the Lemurian epoch, when the earth was at the beginning of physical development. There we find the archai in their own selfhood. We cannot find them if we remain in the present. You see, therefore, that the entire relation of the soul to time must change if we want to penetrate the spiritual world consciously. What we experience in this way, or in fact if we only form an idea of these things and progress further and further in the inner experience of the idea, creates a mood in the soul of inner devotion, something like being poured out into actual spiritual reality. Here we have yet another vowel of the spiritual world. You can understand how in this further experience I have described we become more and more independent of the space or time in which we stand in the physical world. You see that we not only go out of ourselves, but that simultaneously with this outgoing we also enter the weaving and being of the universe. And not just one-sidedly, as we expand ourselves in spatial spheres, but many-sidedly, as we experience ourselves in time as a living being, who has within itself the points of consciousness of the entities of the higher hierarchies. When we, therefore, no longer live only in ourselves, and what is more, no longer live in the space and time we refer to as a physical being, but instead have accepted space into our body and time into our soul. Take note of this expression. We learn to understand it in its full significance only gradually when we have meditated on it a great deal. Then, we have united ourselves 
with what is not a general abstract feeling, but rather a living, weaving, and being in a cosmic existence full of meaning. Everywhere one transports oneself has meaning, and everywhere we transport ourselves meaning sprouts in our soul. And from individual meaning, universal meaning constitutes itself and weaves and exists in the world. The meaning of things blossoms forth like fruit out of many centers, and the spiritual content that blossoms forth in individual meanings from individual entities weaves itself together into a universally meaningful cosmic word. We weave and live within the cosmic word. This weaving within and living within the cosmic word is yet another vowel of the spiritual world, the most primal vowel of the spiritual world. With this experience of the cosmic word, which we must conceive in its manifold livingness and not merely as spiritual hearing, everything resides that one can call inspiration in the higher sense. With this we can say, quote, What I know in this cosmic word, the world knows in me. I am basically innocent in everything I know in this way, for the world knows it in me. I can fall short in knowledge of the cosmic word only because I am an imperfect instrument that allows this cosmic word to resound in me merely as fragmentary radiations. But it is the cosmic word that resounds in me. And the more modest we have become, the further we have progressed toward being selflessly devoted without having any pretensions about our own actions, thinking, feeling, and willing, the more we have progressed in allowing the cosmic word to rule in the weaving of our own being. Then, the more objectively we reproduce through the cosmic word what flows secretly through the world. So we have once again spoken of a vowel, of the fifth cosmic vowel. I wanted to awaken in you a concept, if only a very primitive one, of what the vowel system of the universe is. Now, when we have progressed as far as being versed in our inner being, in the kinds of feeling I have described through these five cosmic vowels, when we can experience in our soul what is, so to speak, a condensation from the spiritual world, then the soul can listen to what is occurring in the spiritual world. Then the spiritual world can speak to it. What happens then when communion with the spiritual world is truly cultivated on the path that opens through what I have described? Our astral body and our ego. The ego, however, has been raised to a higher level by being selflessly muted in the previously described manner and has descended into the astral body, are outside our physical and etheric bodies. Indeed, we are outside our physical and etheric bodies with our ego and astral body when we are perceiving spiritually here in the life between birth and death. But we are still looking back at the etheric body and 
It is the etheric body that reflects the vowel system. The etheric body has the possibility of sevenfold reflection. I have mentioned five of the reflections, five vowels. There are still two other vowels, which should be discussed more thoroughly on another occasion. But the characteristic ebb and flow of the etheric body, what it reflects in its life processes when we are outside ourselves, presents itself as these vowels. That means that something happens in the etheric body when we develop feelings like those we can experience through preparing to stand at the portal of death or preparing to face evil with understanding or living and weaving within the cosmic word. According to whether one holds one thing or another thing out to the spiritual world, something different is reflected in the etheric body we are looking back at. It is hard to describe, but I will say that the entities of the world are reflected sevenfold in the etheric body. I will represent it schematically like this. There's a drawing. This represents the etheric body of a person, very schematically. When we experience the feeling that arises through preparing to stand at the portal of death, the etheric body will be drawn together here, in the uppermost region. It's around the, from the middle of the forehead down to the larynx, roughly. There's a little shaded area in the drawing. And receives a certain radiance and resonance. And from this radiance and resonance, something emerges that we can call a vowel of the spiritual world. If we now develop another feeling, the etheric body draws itself together in another region, let us say the region of the heart. Then one sees another radiance and perceives another kind of resonance, as from within a being into which we have transformed ourselves with the ego and the astral body. What I have said up until now refers to the vowels of the spiritual world. Just as there are seven vowels, there are also consonants of the spiritual world, twelve in number. We approach these twelve consonants most easily when we comprehend the physical body in the same way we have grasped the etheric body in its vowel nature. The physical body reveals itself then as a twelve-foldness. The time here is insufficient even to mention anything of how we can approach the twelve-foldness of the physical body in the same way we approach the seven-foldness of the etheric body. But this I must say, when we are outside our physical and etheric bodies, they become something entirely different from what they are when we are living in them. When we are living in them, the etheric body is what sustains our life processes, what makes us living organisms and the physical body is what builds our organism of senses. There we are, inside it. We need our etheric and physical bodies in order to be such people on the physical plane as we actually are. However, as soon as we are outside the physical and etheric bodies in the sense that has already been indicated in this lecture, we relate to them as we would to signs. The etheric body is then indeed a living entity, but it shows nothing of the duty, the function that it has as the life principle at the foundations of our physical organism.
It reveals itself as a sign of the seven vowels. It becomes something objective, which we contemplate and which in its changeability is a reflection of the vowel system of the entirety of the universe. We become as alien to our etheric body as we are to the vowels of the physical external alphabet. And we become as alien to our physical body, which has now become a totality of the twelve signs brought together in it, as we are alien to the consonants of the ordinary alphabet. And just as consonants and vowels permeate the words of the ordinary alphabet, enabling us to read this or that word according to how vowels and consonants are connected, so do we read or hear in the spiritual world something different according to how the etheric body, which can manifest itself in seven different ways, harmonizes with or is connected to one or another of the consonants of the physical body. When we meet people on the physical plane, we can communicate because they speak to us and we have eyes to observe and ears to hear the word, to let their language penetrate our souls. Everything that forms a relationship with another person is transmitted by our senses. Something similar transpires in the spiritual world. Let us say we are preparing ourselves to find a human soul who is living between death and a new birth. We know through inner experience that we are now united with this soul, that we are experiencing with it at the same time and in the same place in the spiritual world. Just as we need sense organs in the physical world to communicate with other people, in the spiritual world we need the faculty for looking back at the etheric body and the etheric physical body. They reflect back the interplay of the vowel processes of the etheric body and the consonantal processes of the physical body. And the interplay expresses what one is speaking with the dead person and is therefore necessary for communication with the dead person. Imagine you are united with a dead person in the spiritual world, with a soul living there between death and a new life. You observe the human physical form in which you yourself live on the physical plane and you observe your human etheric form. You look back at these and through them is reflected everything the dead person has to say to you, to communicate with you, what that person is thinking, feeling and willing. The human physical body and the human etheric body have become one comprehensive sense organ. And we can say, we have received the physical and the etheric bodies in our physical life so that we may have sense organs for the spiritual world. We are made aware once again that life in the physical world is not merely life in a veil of tears from which we must yearn to free ourselves as a false asceticism would have it. We realize that life in the physical world has a great and exalted divine mission. Within physical life we are adapting ourselves for what will develop into sense organs for the spiritual world. <clears throat> you will understand it more exactly 
If I tell you how perception of spiritual entities and processes takes place when we ourselves are in the time between death and a new birth, when we do not perceive the spiritual world clairvoyantly from within the physical world, but are united in the spiritual world with spiritual beings. As long as we wear a physical and an etheric body as our raiment, we have something that reflects, for they serve us as sense organs. When we lay them aside in death, naturally we no longer have these sense organs as external reality. You could now easily ask, can we not perceive what we experience in relation to the other entities and processes in the spiritual world between death and new life? Yes, then it is in fact different and we perceive it in another way. Even visionaries must receive what they experience in the spiritual world as a reflection in their physical and etheric bodies here in the physical world. That is how it is as long as they are here in the physical world, as long as the physical body has not been lost through decomposition and the etheric body through dissolution into the spiritual world. When we are in the spiritual world and no longer have physical and etheric bodies, then we are able to sketch out for ourselves from the substance of the spiritual world, the world of signs from which the physical body and etheric body were correspondingly composed. We draw everything into the spiritual world. Assume you are living as a soul between death and a new life together with another human soul. What you say to it or what it says to you, everything that would otherwise have been reflected in your physical and etheric bodies is now impressed into the Akashic Chronicle in the spiritual world. What would otherwise have expressed itself in the reflected image of the physical and etheric bodies in vowels or consonants you now actually inscribe with your own power into the spiritual world, into the Akashic Chronicle, erasing it yourself when it is no longer necessary. I gave the first indication of these things in my book titled Theosophy, at the beginning of the chapter about the so-called realm of spirits, where I said that individuals in a particular stage of development in Devakan, in the realm of spirits, see their previous incarnation lying out before them on the, quote, continent area, close quote, of the realm of spirits. That is an inscription of a spiritual writing. The ideal would be for a book like Theosophy to be studied so eagerly that many readers would arrive at something like what is being discussed now. A great deal is contained in these books, and those who read them with the heart, with all their inner soul experience, could get to that point entirely through their own reading. However, books on spiritual science are usually not read with the required attention. They really are not, for otherwise after Theosophy and titled How to Know Higher Worlds, and perhaps also titled Outline of Esoteric Science, had been written, all lecture cycles could have been written or delivered by someone other than me. 
Basically, everything is in these books, only people generally don't believe it. And how much could be written if everything contained in the four mystery dramas were extracted? I do not say it to promote myself. I have already spoken sufficiently about the humility of the esotericist, of the spiritual scientist. I say it to get you excited about a true reading of these writings, which had to be given particularly in our time, and from which there was, in fact, as little personal credit given as possible. You see, then, that human beings, as they live on the physical plane, develop something in reference to the spiritual worlds that is the seed for the experiences of the higher worlds. The etheric body here in the physical world is not just the life principle of humanity. It is at the same time a means of preparation to experience the sense for the vowels of the spiritual world. And the physical body is a means of of preparation for experiencing the consonants of the spiritual world. We can accomplish much if we seriously attempt to free ourselves from the purely materialistic conception of the human body. Through that we can accomplish much to prepare ourselves so that feelings for the vowel and consonant systems of the cosmos awaken these inner experiences and impulses in the soul. We must only call forth in ourselves a feeling for this preparation for development into higher worlds, which is really similar to what a child must do in the physical world to learn to read and understand the words of our external physical human speech. The materialistic conception of a human physical body takes it just as it presents itself physically. It is taken the same way as symbols written on a blackboard, say I-N-K, ink, would be taken if we investigated them by looking at the curves and strokes, noting that they go up or down or bend around like so, and so on. In brief, we would describe the forms of the letters. That is just how we approach the physical body today. We describe it anatomically, physiologically, heart, lung, liver, and so forth, just as they present themselves on the surface. It is the same as if we were to describe a word by the strokes it consists of. However, the only person who gets anything out of it is the person who has learned to read the word ink from the strokes. We must advance on the physical plane to reading in the spiritual worlds. What we call esoteric reading and esoteric hearing is really a matter of individual experience. We are preparing ourselves for it when, while still in the physical world, we attempt to comprehend the physical body in its character as a sign. What does that mean? I will give you a brief example of this recognition of a sign-like character, but I must leave what is really meant by it to your own meditation and serious reflection. For language really does not suffice in many cases to make oneself understood on these topics. It will only suffice when spiritual science has done its task in the world for a while and has changed language 
so that words are formed in such a way that they link with what is spiritually real and essential. Language must become much more supple, but that will only be possible when spiritual science has been at work in the world over several centuries, and people have become accustomed, through daily involvement with it, to take words differently than is the case today, when they are only applied to things and processes on the physical plane. What occurs in the human head is enclosed in the bone formation of the physical skull. There it is, so to speak, inside. There it is, with few exceptions, physically enclosed from all sides. Schematically, we can represent it in this way, and there's a picture. The head, when we begin to interpret it, and not simply to describe it as it presents itself to the senses, is terribly significant, because in its interior, complicated processes, excuse me, because in its interior, complicated processes take place that are virtually enclosed on all sides by the hardest human material, bone material. Thereby a part of the overall human entity is shut off. It is, however, a part of the human entity, of the human organism. The human being is really not such a simple physical being that one can speak of a mere human being. The primitive ideas about this subject, prevalent today, are shown by the criticism of my books, bracket, regarding the fact that, close bracket, they speak of a sentient soul, an intellectual or mind soul, and a consciousness soul whereas the concept of the soul as a unified organ has been taken as magnificent progress. It is understandable that our materialistic culture prefers the commonly received wishy-washy mishmash about the soul that is called psychology today to the description of the real elements of the entity found in spiritual science. Dividing the soul into the sentient soul, intellectual or mind soul, and consciousness soul is not based on abstract thinking. They belong to different ages in relation to their creation and are connected with different states of being. We can understand why the present intellectual culture finds something like that to be foolish, but in doing so that culture characterizes itself and not what it criticizes. The physical organism of the human being is indeed quite a complicated entity, and by investigating it one can develop the following thoughts, which of course may appear foolish to scientists today, to be sure. But St. Paul says that many a thing that is foolishness before man is wisdom before God. So much of what science sees only as foolishness could be, could be wisdom before God. Consider this idea. What is the situation with our hands? Our hands are most decidedly connected with our soul being. And when we have a living feeling for what is going on in the hands, it is not without significance how people express what they are saying in the gestures of their hands. There is something to be said for that. Now, I will omit many transitional steps and leave it to your own discretion to fill it all in. Suppose now that 
not through a process from the human side, but through one rooted in the world being, our hands were not formed in such a way that we could move them completely freely and let them follow our will. <clears throat> Suppose that instead they were connected to us in such a way that we had to keep them entirely still, that they were affixed to us by external nature. What would it be like then if we had hands but we could not move them? Even if we had hands we couldn't move because they were affixed to us, we would still develop the will to move them. Even when we could not move them physically, we would, in the moment we want to move them, tear off the etheric hands and move those. That is what we do with our brains in reality. Certain lobes of our brain that today lie enclosed within the covering of our skull were still freely movable during the moon phase of evolution. Today they are bound together. They cannot physically move, but etherically they move when we think. We move the etheric brain when we think. If we had not received this fixed brain pan or cranium for the brain that holds the lobes of the brain together, we would reach with our brain lobes and would make gestures with them, as we do now with our hands. However, for us to be able to learn to think, the lobes of our brain had first to be restrained physically, and the etheric part of the brain had to receive the possibility of tearing itself free. What I am saying is no play of the imagination. A time will come when our hands will be grown solid, when much else besides will be a solid part of the middle of our body. What now appears to be a free part of us, near the heart, will then be enclosed by a sheath, just as the brain is now enclosed by the cranium. That will be the Jupiter age. That which is most visibly expressed in our hands is being prepared to become eventually an organ of thought. At present we have preliminarily only rudimentary organs, which are small, not fully grown, just as once we only had pieces of the cranium here in front on the forehead, we now have lying flat behind our shoulder blades what will eventually enclose our future brain. You interpret the shoulder blades in the human body correctly when you regard them as little pieces of bone that really belong to a skull which is closing up, only it is not yet grown into its full form. So you have, so to speak, a second human being enclosed in the first. And now I will say something quite paradoxical. There are yet other organs in the human organism that are pieces of a further cranium. These are now tiny in relation to the rest of the organism and will not be fully grown until a yet later time. These organs are the kneecaps. The kneecaps have only made it as far as little surfaces. They are, as of yet, only suggestions of something that in another direction will become a thought organ for people. We are learning to interpret the human organism when we can say, parenthesis, this is only an example torn out of context, close parenthesis, that the human being has in fact three craniums, 
one is fairly well formed, closed off on all sides. The second is so far present only in two pieces, the shoulder blades. The third cranium consists of nothing more than the kneecaps. The latter two, the shoulder blades and the kneecaps, which now exist only in part, can be completed in thought, rounded out into spheres. Thus we get three brains. What will one day be our second brain is hardly developed in our external human form. Now it shows itself externally. Later it will become an interior brain. When you make gestures with your hands today, you are preparing later thoughts. Thoughts that will conceive the processes of the elemental world in as real a way as you now conceive thoughts of the physical world with your head. As curious and paradoxical as it sounds, what lies outside the kneecaps, the calves and the feet are entirely unfulfilled organs related to the earth's gravity. The kneecaps are preparing themselves in conjunction with what they absorb spiritually from the earth today to become one day when they are no longer present as physical organs spiritual organs that will lead the way into the spiritual world when the earth will be transformed into the Venus state. For that to happen the present physical form must fall away and something else must take its place. You see there is a lot inside the esoteric observation of the world. The most important thing is not that one knows of this or that book that says this or that about the higher worlds. That is not the most important thing. We must acquire all that because that is the only way to find what is right. But the most important thing is a certain manner of soul mood, a certain attitude of the soul through which we learn to approach the world in a new way, and to take things in a different way from that used in the past. The important thing is that we be prepared through what we read with inner mobility of the weaving of thought, the experience of thoughts in themselves, in order to contemplate everything, even what is given physically in the world. For in their external form things are not at all as they really are, as paradoxical as that sounds. Our shoulder blade is not merely a shoulder blade, as you observe it externally. That is maya, that is false. The shoulder blade completes itself for us if we make a point of conceiving it in reality as a more extensive organ. When we see people kneeling, we can gradually get the impression that it is entirely wrong to regard the kneecaps as they exist there only as little parts, that is entirely wrong. The people kneeling in prayer are preparing themselves to live in the sphere that will surround them some day when their kneecaps will spread out, expand into a mighty vault like the surface of a ball, of which they are now only small parts. Praying human beings show us already in their form what human beings will one day become when the earth is in the Venus stage. 
In this way we gradually learn to read in this physical world. We do not merely look at a kneeling person or at some other gesture of the person. We learn to recognize how what we see about a person, what presents itself directly to us, although it is reality, can be false and untrue. We learn in the alphabet what the cosmos wants to express, not in its present state of being, but in its becoming. In this way we gradually learn to decode, interpret, read substantially the essence and comprehend what the world truly is. The physical world is nothing more than a written page that lies before us. If we only gape at it, we don't understand what it is all about. We must learn to read. We know equally little about the world when we regard it only with what physical perception provides and do not become aware that we must decode it and to penetrate into it. We must read it to understand its meaning. <laughs> we become more and more conscious that the world is a book that the hierarchies have written for us so that we may read in it. Then we first become human in the fullest sense of the word. And fundamentally the building we are raising here in its form and configuration, should elicit such feelings, such intimate attunements and compositions of the soul that we become capable of reading the world, of hearing the secrets of the world. For that reason, the structure must be as it is, so that it can elicit what lies within us, at least a certain little part of it. It is good, my dear friends, <clears throat> to form often in meditation an idea of what task spiritual science can have in the world in relation to what is now already in the world, what must develop out of it, how it should adapt itself into what should develop historically. If only there could exist among our friends in the Anthroposophical Society a circle that is carried by the living consciousness that such a thing must be worked and woven into the development of humanity. It was not merely to convey truths, but to arouse such a feeling in souls that I have given lectures such as these. The end of Lecture 4